Let me pose to you a probing but important question. As an employee, are you motivated to always give your best at work? Are you motivated to earn your oxygen and the respect of those that you work with? And is your job performance dictated by the level of respect that you have for your top leadership? Well, Gallup has something to tell us about this very fact. The publication found that a staggering 70% of employees are motivated by the performance of their manager. The lack of motivation leads to a higher employee turnover. The University of California discovered that 87% of employees are less likely to quit their job if they have a high level of respect for their top leadership and they feel invested in the company. John S. Rennie has spent more than two decades in the field of business leadership. Currently, he serves as the co-founder and president of Peak Demand. They specialize in being a premium manufacturer for critical components for electrical utilities. In Rennie's view, it's important to remember that leadership is a people business. And he should know a thing or two about leading a team of people towards a common goal. Because you see, Rennie is a Navy man. He served as a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine officer who made multiple deployments during the end of the Cold War. And now, Rennie talks to organizations about building a sustainable and strong organizational culture, and he also runs his own podcast called Deep Leadership, where he interviews some of the top performing leaders in business and in life. He's also written two books himself and has a wealth of knowledge he was eager to share during the time that we engaged in conversation this week on leadership, his time in the Navy, and how he hopes his business leadership and life journey will be defined. So, without further delay, I'm Kevin McShann. Let's have this conversation.
I'll take a moment to welcome you uh, to the program, my friend. And I'm super excited to talk to you this morning about workplace diversity, your time in the service, and everything in between. Happy Friday, my friend, and it's great to see you. It is great to see you. Yeah, happy Friday. Absolutely. So, John, I wanted to start our conversation around workplace diversity because, as you may know, March is also uh, National Disability Awareness Month, my friend. And, uh, you know, I was born with uh, cerebral palsy, so it's important to me to uh, promote the need to uh, diversify our, our workforces and, and infuse individuals with disabilities into the workforce. So tell me about how you think we get that done as workplace leaders and the importance of the the observance of National Disability Awareness Month. Yeah, I think that it's an interesting, uh, you know, point that you bring up. And um, it, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that we have to do, and I talk about this a lot, that leadership is a people business, right? And every person that we bring on board our company adds some sort of value, has some very much interesting background, some experience, some different way of looking at, uh, at, at what we're trying to do, you know, in the world. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I learned in the military, when we when we got on that submarine, right, we had people from all over the country, every walk of life, every sort of religion, background, and what have you. And one of the things is we had to have a common mission. So we had to work together towards achieving a common mission. And I think you can do that in a workplace. And I've been doing that for years. I've been doing this for, I've led eight manufacturing businesses working for three global companies. And now I have my own manufacturing business. But we try to bring the best and the brightest and uh, to, to the, you know, to our company to be able to achieve great things. And those ideas and those, the, the resources come from all stripes. And there's nothing in our organization, especially in the, in the office roles that, that really, that almost anyone can do. They can bring their, their own, um, whatever, whatever kind of disability they might have, they can add value. And we've, we've had engineers, some of the smartest engineers that work that I've worked with over the years, they were confined to a wheelchair, but yet they can do their job very well. So, I mean, I've always believed that that leadership is a people business. We want to bring the best and the brightest, and uh, and we want to have diversity of of just different types of backgrounds, so that we're all not all thinking the same way. Because the problem when you get a bunch of people that come from the same background have similar opinions on things. You're not going to get make the right decision. You're not going to make the best decision. And the other thing I would say this is the number one principle in my companies is uh, is to treat everybody with respect. So it doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is, what your uh, you know what your history is, what your disability might be. Is that we bring respect as first and priority, and that's a big part of what I do when I run our businesses. So uh, it's respect first, respect for the individual, respect each other, protect each other, keep each other safe and accomplish a shared mission. That's a big part of what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And just building on that point, uh, John, John, I know that you're a big guy. You're a big believer in uh, providing uh, competitive advantages for companies and hiring mm -hmm. individuals with disabilities can, can certainly add a competitive advantage to a company, can't it? Oh, absolutely. There's nothing that we do uh, you know, it's interesting that um, that you know we 
that what we do here, what, what I've been doing in most of my companies are highly technical products, right? And, uh, you know, it's funny because a, a, a lot of really good technical people have, have some have disabilities and they, but there's nothing that they, that, uh, restricts them from being highly accomplished in our type of industry. So, uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, there may be some in the factory cause I run manufacturing businesses. There may be certain processes that may not work out for, for an individual, but we always try to make accommodations for everybody that, uh, that we can, that we can, uh, in our, in our facilities. But for certainly there's, there's no reason why anyone can't be a part of these technical companies if they have the skill sets, if they are willing to work hard, and if they're willing to sign on to a, to a mission that we have as a company. So absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, John, when you talk about workplace and workforce leaders, obviously adversity is doing this strike in the workplace at some point. So how do you think is the best way leaders can really overcome adversity and lead from a position of strength. Yeah, I, I love, um, you know, there's an author called Angela Duckworth, and she wrote a book called Grit. And she defines grit as, uh, pers- you know, passion and perseverance for long-term goals. And so I would say the way that we overcome adversity in our organizations is that we have a shared purpose and that we have a passion for that person purpose, so much so that we're able to persevere through the challenges that we have on a day-to-day basis. So like when I'm looking to hire people, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring it up, Kevin, because when I look to hire people, one of the things I look for is grit. Show me in your past how you've overcome adversity, right? And so we were talking about uh, disabilities, for example. I think about the, 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 if you come into this world and you've got something that 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 makes you, makes it harder for you to accomplish your goals, right? Like some that may that may have some disabilities. I look at that as an advantage. I see grit in that individual. I see someone that has overcome difficulties, and they're not someone that's going to quit when things get tough. So I like to have a workforce of people that have grit, which is this passion. Uh, and perseverance for for a long-term goal. And I think that uh, when you have that, you're able to overcome adversity a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. And John, you tell us that uh, you find that uh, business leadership isn't what it used to be. So tell me, what do you think is the problem with business leadership today? And how do you think we can reverse course in that regard? I actually think it's getting better. I think finally... One of, one of the things I've seen is the younger younger employees sort of get it. They're, they say, you know, the older employees used to say, well, I go work at a company, I'll do whatever they say, I'll retire and get a gold watch, right? The younger employees are saying, wait a second, if it's, if it's not working out for me, if I'm not uh, able to accomplish my personal goals, then I'm just going to go to another company, I'm going to leave. So one of the things I've noticed is that the younger employees are almost demanding that leaders treat them uh, with respect. And uh, we're seeing a lot more employee-centric kind of attitudes coming out of leadership. For years and years, it's been profit first, people second. And I think we're starting to see maybe now a leaning, especially post-COVID, towards, uh, you know, people above profits. And, you know, I've always believed that when you get the people things right, the profit always follows. And I think a lot of leaders, they, they look at profits first and they forget about their people. And then they end up having a lot of turnover and a lot of uh, problems within the workforce. So I do think that 
we are starting to see a lot more awareness with uh, treating people with respect. Uh, and, um, and I think part of it is because younger people aren't putting up with the kind of crap that has had to, people had to have had to deal with in the workplace for many years. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, John, I'm curious to ask you about uh, entrusting employees as a leader, because, you know, you know, I strongly believe that if you entrust employees as leaders, they, they in turn will be invested in the work and invested in the company. So tell me, how important is it, is it as a leader to sort of relinquish control and trust your employees? to do the task that you've assigned to them. It makes a big difference in leadership, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, big time. You know, I think there's two words to think about when it comes to leadership. And they got it, we got it right when we were in the military, when I was in the Navy. So it's accountability and responsibility, right? So what they taught us in the Navy is that you can, uh, you can, uh, uh, you can delegate, right, responsibility as a leader, but you always maintain accountability. You are accountable for the results of the organization, but you can, you can uh, allocate that, uh, you can, you can designate that uh, authority to your people. So you can relegate them to make decisions, right? But then you as a leader will, will always be accountable for it. So one of the things I noticed when I came into corporate after the military was that we do just the opposite. Sometimes we, we delegate responsibility to our people but then we hold back on authority. So we, we hold them accountable and then we don't and then we don't give them the authority to get the job done. And so one of the things I try to do as a leader is is to to delegate authority, give give people the the, the tools they need to make decisions, right? But then the leader ultimately is responsible for those decisions. So you have to have your back the your employees back, right? So uh, you're responsible ultimately ultimately is the leader, but you can you can delegate that responsibility low in the organization so that they feel, because people want to have a voice. They want to feel like their work matters and they want to have control over what they do. And if you're dictating all the, all the authority from above, then you're never really going to, um, you're really never going to uh, empower your people. They're always going to feel like uh, they're not trusted and they're not um, given enough responsibility. And that's why people leave. When they feel like they don't have a voice, they tend to leave companies. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, John, tell me about your time in the Navy, how, how it affected your life and how, how, how it's helped you to be uh, the best business leader you, you can be, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I was in, I was on a submarine. I And, uh, you know, submarines are really a unique in, uh, military environment um, in that we, uh, you know, there was 155 of us as on, a, on the crew, so 15 officers and the rest were the crew, and we would go out for three months at a time. So we would get, uh, get in this, you know, metal tube, basically, they'd lock the doors and we would go under the water for three months at a time. And one of the things you realize is that, uh, there is this uh, shared um, accountability and responsibility for operating this vessel. There's a shared vulnerability as well. So um, unlike other military units, if something goes wrong in our in our submarine, we all perish, right? So every sailor is responsible and accountable to the to the performance of this uh, submarine. So even your most junior sailor, can uh, turn the wrong valve and cause all of us to perish. So 
we were all in it together. So we were all, you know, as, as I wrote in my second book, we were all in the same boat, right? So we had a common mission, which was to protect the country and get everybody home safely. That was our common mission. And we had a common shared vulnerability and responsibility. We had to run that uh, that uh, that biz- that uh, ship uh, as a team with that shared vision of getting home safely. So I think that we were much more, in, uh, we, we did a lot better job training up and making sure that everybody in the crew knew what their roles were and what their job was during normal operations and during casualty events. And so we did a really good job of that and we held each other accountable. We had each other's back and we were a team focused on a common mission. And uh, what, I, what I learned is when you bring that to business, you're much more successful when you don't have special privileges for the people in the office versus the people on the manufacturing floor. When you uh, when you're when you're working towards a common mission that's well communicated, these things really translated well. The other thing we did on a submarine, we really got to know people really well, right? Because you're under the water, you know, for 90 days, you really get to know your people. And I think leaders who get to know their people will always be more effective too. So that common bond, that common vision, that common purpose, and then and, uh, the fact that uh, you know really getting to know people that those are two that really come to mind with what I did in the military compared to business. Yeah, absolutely. And to that point, John, John, tell me about your uh, second book. We're all in the same boat. What inspired you to write it, and what do you think? You hope people get out of it when they read it. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I wrote I wrote my first book is called Eye of the Watch, and it's a lot of leadership stories in that first book. But one of the things that people said is, I want to hear more stories from the submarine. I want to hear more sea stories. So uh, All on the Same Boat was, was written to kind of answer that uh, request. But also it was really uh, taking those ideas that I learned, uh, you know, operating in a very high stress environment, right, where we worked as a team, taking those ideas, and then, and I talk about how I applied those, uh, those lessons I learned, you know, leading on a nuclear submarine, how I applied those lessons throughout my business career. So, uh, in, in, in how those, uh, the ideas from, from the, the time in the service, how they translate really well to to business. So the common theme is all in the same boat means that we're all in it together, right? Your most junior employee to your more senior to, to to the CEO, everybody has a role to play in carrying out the mission. And so that's a really big part of it is that your most junior employee is critical to your mission and they have to know what their role is in the organization so that they can help achieve the mission. So I think uh yeah, I mean, it was a very unique work environment being on a submarine, and but but a lot of the, the the skills we learned to be effective there, dealing with people. Um, you know, one of the things is we say, you know, on, on on the submarine, we had to make we had to reach the surface. Failure was not an option, so we we made sure that every all our systems and our training took place that we could we could make it to the surface no matter what happened. And I think those that translates well to business too. Is like. What can you do to make sure that you always guarantee success? You always have good quality. You always ship on time, and that failure is not an option. These are these are some some fundamentals that I learned in the military that uh, I, I practice today in business. So a lot of really good, powerful lessons in that book, and it's filled with stories. And that's people love stories. 
there's, I think, 60 stories in that in that book, like individual stories of life on a submarine. So if you're interested in what is it like to live and operate on a submarine and you want to know those leadership lessons and how they translate to business, it's a great book for that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, John, I know you're the, you're the co-founder and president of your uh, company, Peak uh, Demand, uh, which is a premium uh, manufacturing company, as you said at the outset of our conversation. So I'll give you the platform to tell me all about the company and, and its mission, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, we're we a manufacturing company. We're here in North Carolina, and we started it seven years ago. Uh, all of us came from large uh, companies in our industry, and we were frustrated with the lack of, uh, I would say, uh, the, the lack of respect that the big companies were giving to customers in our industry. So, uh, you know, lead times were long. Uh, it was hard to find somebody on an email or a phone call. Basically, the big companies in our industry kind of treat customers like crap. <laughs> so we said there's got to be a better way. Uh, and so we started the business seven years ago. We built a manufacturing facility. We designed products. We launched to the market. We sell products to electric utilities. And um, yeah, and so we do it in a way that uh, we, we call ourselves, our vision is to be a different kind of supplier. And that what different means is that we, if the big companies are slow, we go fast. If the big companies are uh, argumentative, we're friendly. So we kind of take the opposite tact of what the the, the common uh, behaviors of the industry leaders are, and we make them better. So we, because we have a lot of experience in the industry, we all came from large companies. We we know where the problems are in the product design and and, and the and the and the fulfillment process. We fix that. So we made our products a little bit better, right? And so we make our delivery a little bit better. So we're just like the big guys, only we're a little bit better. And I think that's where we found our niche, and uh, customers love us for what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And to that point, John, I'm curious to ask you, what does workplace equity mean to you? Because, you know, sometimes I, I believe that talent is an equally distributable commodity, but sometimes access to the opportunities, opportunities sometimes isn't. So what does workplace equity mean to you? Yeah, I think it's fair treatment for for every individual that comes into the organization. So when I say fair treatment, it's it's access to uh, opportunities for advancement, for training, for um, you know, for for doing. Here's the deal. I mean, at the end of the day, if we can find, if we can help our our employees, if we know who they are, like I told you, you know, on a summary, we really got to know our people well. If I know you really well, I know what your hopes and dreams are, right? And if we can align our employees' hopes and dreams, right, with the things that we have going on in our business and giving them the opportunities for advancement, giving them the opportunities for access to that advancement, then they're going to be uh, more willing to contribute more to organizations. So it's a it's about um, it's about fair treatment. It's about treating everyone with respect and giving everyone that same level of 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 access to uh, to company resources, to advancement, and and what have you, regardless of where you started from or what your challenges might be. Right, uh, because everyone brings value to the organization. Just like I said earlier. Our most junior employee on a submarine, most junior sailor, was critical to our mission. That's the same thing in, in a company. Every employee is critical to the mission, and we just have to give them the, those opportunities uh, equally to 
to advance and to to for resources that the company can provide. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, John, uh, as we've uh, touched on your uh, Navy career, I know that uh, uh, it's an important part of your life. But from your perspective, what were some of your favorite Navy uh, Navy stories from your perspective, my friend? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I could tell you one story uh, real quick. Um, you know, one of the things that we had to do a lot on the submarine is we would bring on, like at the end of every deployment, we would um, bring inspectors on board. So these were senior officers that would run us through various drills to, to, to test us to see how well we are, what we were doing. And typically these lasted three, four, five days in a row where we'd run all these drills. And so it was a very high stress situation not not many people got sleep so we didn't like these inspectors very well because they you know they were constantly running us through drills and they were constantly evaluating us you know running around with clipboards writing things down taking names and so we're always excited when they left the ship and one time i was the officer of the deck on, we were on the surface and we were having tugboats come and pick up pick up uh the these inspectors who had come on board to run this you know, these four days, five days of testing. And, uh, you know, we were so happy to see them leave. And uh, one of the things that happens on a submarine, when we when we come up from the surface, a lot of times you'll have a lot of flying fish. Would will They fly, they literally do fly in the air and they land on the back of the submarine and they'll die in the, you know, in the, in the you know, because they're out of water. And one of our sailors who had been so frustrated with these inspectors and, and, uh, so when we got, after we dropped them off, we came down, I came down from the bridge and we were having lunch. And one of the sailors said to me, he said, yeah, he said, you know, we were all so happy these guys are gone. But this guy looked at me and he said, yeah, he goes, I loaded, I loaded all those flying fish in his bag, one of the inspector's bags. So he took all the dead fish and loaded in the bag before the, he, they got the guy off on this. So it just kind of, that was just a typical thing. And a typical Navy thing is just, uh, you know, having some fun and, and uh, being able to do things like that. And just, it was, it was, a, it was a good laugh. Uh, in my book, I have a lot of stories like that about what life is really like on, on a submarine, but the flying fish story was kind of fun. Uh, one of those fun stories. So. Yeah. Com camaraderie between your brothers and sisters of the Navy, right? Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. Yes. Absolutely. And I'm, John, as I, I'm sure you know, uh, March is, Women's History Month. So tell me, hmm. what does uh, the observance of the, the month mean to you? And uh, what is the women's contribution to business has been, my friend? <laughs> yeah. Well, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for women. Every one of us. That's exactly <laughs> right. We all came from for women. So uh, I have my hat's off. But um yeah, you know, it's interesting that you 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 asked that. One of the things that um you know, my when I was on the submarine, the time I was in, it was all male crews. So there were no women on board uh submarines. So this is kind of interesting. And now today, women are allowed to serve on submarines. And one of the things I've done, I've had uh I had an opportunity to interview one of the first women who ever became a naval officer on a submarine. And her story was remarkable in that she had to do everything I had to do. So she had to become a nuclear engineer. She had to be trained in all the processes on how to run a submarine, how to lead, how to lead sailors on a submarine. And she had to deal with 
crew members who had, who were not used to having women on board. So she said she would walk down the hallway and all the sailors would just go up against the bulkhead because they didn't know how to react to having a woman on board. They had been trained and taught, okay, you know, all about sexual harassment, all the things they'd be worried about. And everyone was afraid, right? And so she had she had many more things to deal with to, to, to get into the same job I had, right? So I, you know, she was on my podcast. I run a podcast called Deep Leadership. She was one of my early guests on it. And one of the things I did, I realized is that not only did she have to do everything I had to do as a as a as a male, she had to do more because she had to deal with a lot more adversity than I did to be able to achieve that goal. So, you know, and again, in, in, in the companies I run, right, we don't have that, right? So we have women, women, we work alongside women and men work alongside with each other. There's not there's not that same level of difficulty, but still there there think women face a lot more extra things at work than men do. And so I think we can appreciate the amount of effort that that takes for them to achieve, you know, the high levels in organizations, they have to go through more than I think a lot of men do. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious, John, if you would be willing to share with me some of the important women in your life as well. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, my mom, you know, obviously uh, was a big part of who I am. She, you know, she she was she instilled this uh, love of education in me. Right. I'm you know, I have two master's degree an undergraduate degree. I'm working on a Ph.D. right now. And that, I think, came from my mom. Um, she she instilled that in me. And I would say the other person uh, really important is uh, my wife, who. Uh, really, you know, raised my boys, uh, helped raise him. Mean, she really led my boys. I have two sons. She, she was, she was their mom when I was deployed, when I was, uh, when I was running businesses and she was taking care of things. She took care of the house. She took care of them. And both of my boys have left the house. They're both very successful, but it's because of my wife and her leadership uh, with them. She did a lot to make sure that they, they, you know, grew up to be great human beings, you know, and I would say this in my company, uh, our head of operations is a woman and she is amazing and she's young and uh, she's, I've known her. She worked for me at another company. She was an intern. So I've known her since she was an intern out of college. And now she's my operations manager. And we we were just talking about her this morning with one of my employees. We cannot run this business without her. She runs the show. I don't even know what's going on as CEO. She knows what's going on. My employees sometimes look to me and say, what do I do next? I'm like, have you talked to Jessica? Because <laughs> Jessica knows what's going on. So I have got to see this uh, this young woman go from a college intern to my head of operations, and uh, she's amazing. And uh, yeah, and I think she's special. And uh, so I would say those are the three people that stand out to me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, John, tell me about your podcast, Deep Leadership. You brought it up, so I'll give you the. Florida, tell me all about the podcast, my friend. Yeah, yeah. Deep Leadership. I started it like three years ago. Uh, we have two, we, we do two interviews a week. So we talk to uh, leadership practitioners, authors, uh, educators. So we're looking to, the, the purpose of the podcast is to build a world with better bosses. And so we are talking to uh, all the thinkers, all the leadership thinkers out there, uh, and we're trying to find the best practices to become better bosses and better leaders. So 
Uh, it's two, we, we release episodes on Wednesday and Saturday, and it's all about interviews like this. We meet uh, top thinkers in leadership, and we try to learn from their experiences and their education. So that's what it's all about. It's called Deep Leadership. And uh, yeah, we're up close to 200 episodes now. Well, congrats. Run, running a podcast myself, I know how much work that is. So it's a yeah. tremendous milestone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, and like I said, I, we've had some amazing guests on there. Uh, you can see guests of every, every uh, you know, male, female, every uh, ethnicity, just we, we want to learn from the best. And so we don't care <laughs> what you look like. It's more what you can help us, uh, what you can teach us to help us become better leaders. And that's been a big part of it. And we've had a remarkable talking about uh, Women's uh, History Month. Uh, we've had a, a lot of remarkable women who were, uh, I would say, groundbreakers in terms of their leadership. So like one of the first Apache uh, helicopter, female Apache uh, combat pilots, uh, Apache helicopter pilots. Like I mentioned uh, uh, the um, uh, submarine officer, one of the first uh, female submarine officers. So we try to feature leadership, but also groundbreaking leadership as well. We, we, and, and so we've got some great stories in there and you'll, 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 you'll love if you follow it and you subscribe, you're going to get lots of great stories, lots of great guests on that show. Hey, I always say that uh, diversity of perspective is a strength, isn't it? Oh, a hundred percent. You know, it's funny. Um, whenever I try to build a management team, I really look to make sure that we do have that diversity and, and, and because I don't want us all to be thinking the same. You know, uh, I, I also talk a lot about like introverts, for example. A lot of times we listen as leaders too much to our extroverts because they're very vocal and they're always talking all the time. But I always think the best ideas come from the quietest person in the room. And so part of what I try to do is make sure that all the voices are heard and that we listen to the people that are even quieter on our team. So I like to have people from that have been promoted from within. I like to have people from the outside. I like to have older people. I like to have younger people. I like to have different different backgrounds and races uh, because I think all of that helps us make better decisions uh, as an organization. Gives us better perspective, for sure. It certainly does. And I'm, John, I'm curious because I know that you believe in a saying called earn your oxygen. So tell me about <laughs> the philosophy and how you came up with it, my friends. Yeah, yeah, that's an expression on a submarine. We say you have to earn your oxygen, and that means you have to become qualified. You need to be a qualified member of the crew, and there's a very long process. It takes about a year for an officer to become fully qualified on a submarine. So just because you went to engineering school, just because you spent a year and year and a half going through Navy training, the crew will not trust you until you have what's called your submarine dolphins. This is a, the gold dolphins you wear in a uniform. And that takes about a year to go through that process. And when you're, when you're not qualified, you're called a nub. And they, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a funny phrase, and we know what it meant, but a, a nub on a submarine is a non-useful body. It's someone who isn't qualified, and you are, they would say, you're stealing my oxygen and my food, and you're not yet qualified. So earning your oxygen means becoming a valuable member of your team, right? And so uh, in, the, in the submarine force, they, we had a way to become qualified. There was a method to become qualified. When you come into most companies, there isn't that it doesn't exist, right? So you have to figure out how to become useful to your company on your own, 
you yourself have to figure out how do I become a useful member of this team, a useful member of this company. And so um, I do talk to a lot of uh, high school students. And that's one of the message I, I tell them is, is, is that become useful, become useful in what you do. One of the things that young people get get they get distracted with is that we are consumers. There's so many ways that we can become consumers of information, of TV, movies, uh, video games, and then and we're not and we're not contributing to to society. So I tell people when I talk to high school students, I say, don't be a nub, don't be a non-useful body, don't be a consumer, be a creator. It's the creators in the world, right, that, that really get things done, that accomplish big things, that change the world, right? I mean, we wouldn't have these phones if it wasn't for, oh, yeah, we wouldn't have these phones if it wasn't for the dreamers and the creators and the and the thinkers. So I tell people, don't be, you know, don't be um, a non-useful body, earn your oxygen, be a creator, not a consumer. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I have only a couple of more questions for you. And the first is, well, how do you view the concept of vulnerability and the strength of vulnerability and shared responsibility in business? How do you view those concepts and how do you think they're interconnected? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because, um, as I mentioned on a submarine, we had a shared responsibility to 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 be able to keep that, you know, to operate the submarine and and be able to accomplish our mission and get home safely. Right. We we all shared in that, but we were also equally vulnerable in that if something went wrong, we would all perish. Right. So one of the things I noticed when I came to corporate, the corporate world after the military is that there wasn't a shared responsibility and a shared vulnerability. Right. So I noticed that when things went bad in a company it seems like they would lay off the production people or they would lay off the call center people. They, they would lay off the junior people and the senior people always kept their job. Right. And so when I go into an organization, I try to get everybody in the, all in the same boat focused on this common mission and we're all in it together. There's no special privileges for certain members of the organization. Right. And, and, and so we are all in it together. We have a shared responsibility to run this business. Everybody's important. Everybody should be treated with respect and uh, and and we're all in it together. So if 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 things go bad in the company, it's not the, the the hourly person's fault. It's my fault as the business leader. And when we need to cut costs, I cut my costs. I cut my salary first to be able to get, be able to you know ride through those challenges. And I think that's a different kind of mindset than you know just fire a bunch of the junior people whenever anything goes bad, which is the way most business leaders approach business. Well, hence the title of your second book, right? Absolutely. We're all in it together, all in the same boat. Sink or swim. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And drop my final question for you as a, a two-parter. The first is, how do you define business resilience? And when you look at your own personal and professional legacy, how do you want that to be defined? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that a lot. Um yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, a lot of times when people see the kind of credentials, academic credentials, they say, they say, well, you must be a smart person. And I like to say that I'm not a smart person, but I'm a, I, I'm a, a person that has grit. I have perseverance. I'm willing to do the hard things to be able to accomplish a uh, difficult task. I'm willing to put in the extra hours. I'm willing to outlearn and to outwork my peers, right? So I think that um, 
if if anything, I I want people to look at my legacy and say, this is someone who didn't give up, who, you know, I grew up in a, I uh, came from Manchester, New Hampshire. I grew up in Manchester, New Hampshire. It was a blue collar town. Not many people left Manchester. We, you know, it was sort of like, uh, you know, you're born there, you raise your family there, you die there. And and people that, that grew up there didn't go on to, you know, lead nuclear submarines, did not go on to lead, you know, eight manufacturing businesses to start their own manufacturing business. Th throughout my entire life, it's been, uh, I've sort of been the underdog and it's always been, how can I outwork and out and out uh, learn my peers to be able to achieve the things that I wanted to do? So I think the story of my life, the legacy I'd like to leave is that anything is possible if you're willing to put the work in, if you're willing to to work hard, and that includes getting things like college degrees and what have you, you can do it if you work hard and you don't have to necessarily be the smartest person in the room. You can be the hardest working person in the room. And my life is a is is a legacy to that. Absolutely. Uh, John, finally, finally, definitely if people want to get connected with you or buy uh, the books that you've written, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, everything's on my website, johnsrenny.com. You'll get uh, links to the books. You'll have links to my uh, social media, links to the podcast, Deep Leadership, but it's all on johnsrenny.com. Fantastic. Well, John, I have to tell you, uh, I uh, have a background in inclusive employment, as you know, and I circled this interview on my uh, calendar because I think uh, business diversification and leadership is important. Uh, uh, is an important conversation to have. So I really, really appreciate your work in this place and time on my behalf this morning. It's most appreciated. Oh, thanks, Kevin. This has been an honor to be on your show, and I appreciate what you're doing as well. Thank you.